thank you for sending me away again. Um, I want to give you a, a report at some point, and we're not sure when that's going to happen. Uh, just briefly, we spent a week in uh, Ukraine and another week in Israel. Uh, Terry and I uh, preached or taught uh, 40 hours um, plus preaching on top of that. And it was an exhausting trip, but it was a, an unusually fruitful trip. And, um, and it was just wonderful, just wonderful. So much to learn, and so much to teach, obviously. Uh, now that I, I've been to Israel, I come back and I hear our teachers talk about, you know, the, the, the holy hill and the valleys and the Psalms of Ascent. All of that makes sense to me now. And so praise the Lord. Um, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together in your book. And Lord, we are so thankful to you that you have not left us to grope looking for truth or inventing our own truth, but that you have revealed yourself to us and you have given us all the truth that we need. This book is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. We believe that. Help, Father, our unbelief. And change us, we pray, until we, like Christ, live completely according to your precepts. Help me now, Father, I pray, to proclaim your truth boldly and compassionately. And most of all, Father, to get the point of the text right and the message clear. No, Father, I pray that you would use, by your Spirit, your word in our hearts to change us and conform us a little more to your Son. Remind, them, remind us how great is your gospel and how desperately we needed it and need it still. And, oh, Father, I pray that you would be glorified in it all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are back in Colossians chapter 1. And I want to begin just by saying that some of the sweetest moments in my life are reconciliation moments. When I look back over my years of life and ministry, I'm reminded that some of the deepest and longest lasting friendships I have are with men and women who at one point or another were severely estranged from me. The cause of such relational fractures in each case was sin, often mine, sometimes theirs, frequently both. And yet, in the mystery of God's sweet grace, all parties involved humbled themselves, owned their sin, asked for forgiveness, granted forgiveness, and then began joy, enjoying a kind of sweet relationship that can only be forged in the fires of brokenness and humility and reconciliation. These are reconciled friendships. They are reconciliation friendships. And today they are to me, those relationships are precious beyond measure. I wish we had time to even tell you about a few, but we don't have time. 
But I do want to talk to you this morning about reconciliation. I've come to believe that the only reason sinful men and women ever enjoy reconciliation with one another is because we have been purchased and born again, even created by a reconciling God. And so this morning I want to talk to you about reconciliation, but not the reconciliation per se of men with men, but rather the reconciliation between God and man. And before we dive into the text in earnest this morning, I want to note Paul's motive for writing this letter. You see, Paul was really encouraged by this church in Colossae. They'd embraced the true gospel. Their love for one another was profound, and, and everyone knew about it. They were striving for faithfulness, and, and Paul was simply praying, at least at the beginning, that the Lord would continue to fill them up with knowledge and wisdom so that they would know how to walk in a manner that was pleasing to the Lord in every respect. Nevertheless, he is concerned about the false teaching that had been swirling around the church. This was a small church. And, and in some sense, the most insignificant church in all of Asia Minor. And we talked about that in the past. It was kind of off the beaten path. The main road that used to run through Colossae had moved. And so they were left just out there, out in the sticks, out in the boonies, we might say. Uh, a little church plant. And some of the voices that they were hearing, these false teachers, these, these new believers were hearing, was a, an invitation to go back into the practices and pleasures of their former rebellion. And Paul wants to put a rock under their feet and stabilize them and keep them secure in their faith. So how will he do that? How will he do that? How will he strengthen and stabilize them to resist the allurements of the world? And that's really kind of a question throughout this book, but in a more of a microcosm way in this text. Simply put, this is how he will do it. He will dazzle them with the wonder of a reconciling Christ. You see, Paul was convinced that the best way to protect the Colossians against temptation was to teach them to set their minds on the preeminent Christ. He will say to them explicitly in chapter 3, this very thing. And if you read it, you'll understand as you go through the book of Colossians that, that one of Paul's best strategies for resisting temptation and sin is simply to, and I quote from chapter 3, set your mind on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The idea here is, if your mind is set on Christ, you will not set your mind on things below, things that are earthly, things that are fleshly, things that will distract you from worship and the enjoyment of Christ. And Paul wanted them to replace inferior desires with superior desires and satisfaction, which is found only in fellowship with Christ. In fact, though Paul did feel a need to warn the saints in Colossae about certain false teaching, his primary tact was simply to exalt Christ in the highest, to the highest extremity of their mental faculties and affections. Paul wants these Christians to think and live in a manner 
that magnifies the preeminence of Christ in all things. And by so doing, he will empower them to resist the temptations of the world. The focus is nowhere more evident. This focus is no, nowhere more evident in the book than in verses 15 through 20. And last time we were together on this, in this text, I preached this very text. But let me read it for you. Many of you have it memorized. This is one of the most Christological passages in the New Testament. And here is Paul describing for us who the preeminent Christ is. And in doing so, he reveals why Christ is preeminent. And here's what he said, Colossians 1, 15. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now you'll remember from last week in Jason's excellent sermon on Genesis chapter 1 that God is independent and sovereign and purposeful. He's independent, we learned last week, which means in part that he is without need. He is completely and totally free, and he is the only being that is. He does as he pleases to accomplish all of his holy will. He is independent. And secondly, he is sovereign. He created everything, and he rules over all. And in creating everything, he did it with a word. Now that's authority. When I tell people to do things, they look at me and they consider <laughs> whether or not I have the authority or the power to induce them to do it. But whenever God spoke, marvelous things instantly came into being. He is sovereign and he is purposeful. And we learned that everything God created was good and was designed by God to magnify his glory. And so it is with all of his creation. Now, when we think of these, these three things in comparison with Colossians 1, the truly amazing thing that we notice is that this eternally independent, sovereign, and purposeful God turns out to be none other than Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us that. He tells us that Jesus owns the cosmos by right of the firstborn. That everything created came into being by him and for him. And in him, all creation adheres and holds together. And that these things are possible because all the fullness of deity dwells in him, which is just the almost poetic way of saying he is God. All the things that you think about, which are true, 
Every true thing, let me say that again, every true thing that you think about God in Genesis chapter 1 is true of Jesus Christ. This, beloved, is an amazing revelation of the glory of Christ. And Paul's purpose here is not merely to amaze the Colossians in us with a verbal display of Jesus' infinite power and authority, although I hope you'll meditate on that and cultivate worship in your heart because of it, but rather, Paul wants us to understand what Jesus intends to do with that power now. That power, that authority, was not merely for the creation event. He is using it and will use it. This is amazing. What would you do with that kind of power and authority? What would you do if you had all authority and power to do as you please, having recently created everything that exists? And furthermore, what would you do if, if the creation you brought into existence had gone to pot, as it were, as a result of willful rebellion and sin? Now your beautiful, perfect creation is broken, deteriorating, and in a moral sense, becoming uglier by the day. What would you do? I know what I would do. I'd scrap the whole thing. In one awesome display of annihilating judgment, I'd scrap the whole thing and start all over. But God, he is not like your pastor. You see, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he chose a different way. What will he do with his infinite power and authority? over a broken creation and a sinful humanity, this is what he will do. He will set his glory on display in two awe-inspiring acts of reconciliation. The first reconciling wonder that Paul mentions is in chapter 1, verse 20, which is actually one that will take place in the eschatological future. By his divine power, God will reconcile the broken cosmos. That is, he will put everything back in its rightful place. In that day, he will redeem the heavens and the earth and make all things new to the praise of his glory. No, oh, what a glorious act of sovereign power and purpose that will be. But before that happens... He will exercise that same power and authority in a different direction. He will employ it to reconcile sinners to himself. In fact, he has already begun, as everyone in this room who knows him knows. And the believers in Colossae are evidence of his reconciling grace. And that is the direction Paul wants to turn our hearts toward in our passage for this morning. Now, with all of that as introduction, let's stand together and read Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 
he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. In this passage, I see two truths that Paul drives home to strengthen the believers against the allurements of the world. Number one, he talks about the divine gift of a reconciled life. That's what the Colossians were. And that's what you are if you know him. And secondly, he talks about the observable fruit of the reconciled life. Let's begin with verses 21 and 22, and this will be by far the majority of the message this morning. In verse 21, Paul speaks to the Colossians about the great change that has taken place in their lives since they repented and trusted in Christ. Before the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, they were, here's the word, alienated. They were alienated. And this is an apt description of every unbeliever, every sinner in the world. All of us, before we came to know Christ, were alienated from him. And Christ was outside. He was somewhere else. It was like being in another nation, having just gotten back from two nations whose languages I don't speak. I found myself in the unique place of being the alien, not understanding what was being said, not understanding fully what was being done around me because I wasn't, I wasn't part of the group. I wasn't part of that culture, that language, that people. Christ was alien to us and we to him. Our worldview was different. The whole of our worldview was different. The things that Christ loves were the very things that we hated and the, and the things that Christ hated were often the very things that we loved. And Paul expresses the same idea to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 12, when he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having, listen to this, having no hope without God in this world. The description applies to to everyone apart from Christ. They're without hope, without hope of eternal life, without God. And can I just remind you that Colossae is a Gentile church. They didn't have the sacrifices or the priesthood or the covenants. They had their own made-up religions. They were really on the outside. They didn't have any of the privileges of Israel And I suspect even today here at Calvary Bible Church in the year 2020, there are people on this campus or listening to my voice right now who are still without hope, without God in this world. If you are such a person, I want to say to you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can turn that around and reconcile you to God. No amount of good works. It's too late for that. You've already sinned. No amount of good intentions, no amount of being nice to your neighbors, 
or being a servant or drilling wells in Africa is going to merit God's favor. You must be reconciled. In the case of the first century Colossians, it wasn't merely that they were ignorant of God, but that they were hostile in their thoughts about him. That's what Paul says. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. And not only were we hostile, there are our, our deeds and their deeds, the, the things that they loved to think about and do, were evil. And isn't that true of so many who are movers and shakers and authorities in our world? I suspect there's never been a greater hostility toward Christians in America than what we are experiencing right now. And it's nowhere near the hostility that our brothers and sisters face around the world. We see this hostility growing. And I'll tell you where we see it. We see it in the arts. We see it in modern art. We hear it in popular music. We see it in the so-called scientific community where the fundamental starting point is the belief that there is no God. We see it in politics and medicine and law where the killing of babies is viewed as an irrevoc irrevocable right and in some cases even a virtue. We see it in the sexual revolution that ties so many of these other things together with one ubiquitous scarlet thread of rebellion against conscience and God. It is everywhere. It is exactly what Paul said would happen in Romans chapter 1. In the end, God's judgment would result in a depraved mind and so that people, especially people in authority, can't even think or process things properly. Nothing makes sense anymore. Down is up. Up is down. White is black and black is white. Good is bad and evil is good. And similar things were true in Paul's day. The difference between the ways believers and unbelievers thought and lived could not have been more antithetical. Even, even abortion back then was a big deal. Except they didn't do it like it's done in modern times. They would just take, if it was a female child, they would just take it out into the woods and leave it. And you know what the Christians would do? They'd go out into the woods every day looking for them and finding them. And it was all female babies, right? They were killing them because they were undesirable. And you know what happened? About 30 years into that mess, when these young boys were growing up, started looking for a wife, they couldn't find one. And word got out. This is a, this is a beautiful providence. Word got out that the only place you could find a good wife is in the churches, the churches they were persecuting. And so these Roman men would go to the churches, and when they came to church to find a wife, they'd find Jesus. It was one of the ways the gospel undermined the Roman Empire. And they brought it upon themselves, and yet God sovereignly ruled over all of it. Albert Barnes writes, theirs, that is the unbelievers, the former Colossians, theirs was a deliberate, purposeful enmity. In other words, they were enemies of God on purpose. It was not the result of temporary passion or excitement. 
and had a deeper seat and, and took hold of their intellectual powers. The understanding was perverse and alienated from God, and all the powers of their soul were enlisted against him. It is this fact, listen carefully, it is this fact which renders reconciliation so difficult and so necessary. In chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul even makes a list of some of the evil deeds the Colossians had previously involved themselves in. Included in that list, see if any of these sound familiar, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, he says. And then he carries on with more examples of this kind of godless rebellion. And it all sounds so strangely familiar. What did the creator Christ do with such people? Abandon them? Condemn them? Pour out his wrath upon them? No. He reconciled them in his body of flesh through death. Body of flesh here is a Hebraism. It, uh, its meaning is Christ's human body. It was just their way of saying it. He reconciled us by the death of his human body. It is only by his death on the cross that we are reconciled to God. It is only by his cross that we are reconciled to God. But I do want to point out something to you, and this is marvelous. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. He says this when he's describing Christ, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I think we cannot comprehend what happened on the day Jesus was nailed to that cross. His finished work not only secured our salvation, but it also somehow, in the mystery of God, secured the reconciliation of all things, the restoration of the cosmos and everything in it. Now, that doesn't mean that every intelligent being in the universe will be saved. What it does mean is that they will all be put in their proper places. But what does reconcile mean? when it comes to his relationship with us. To reconcile, generally speaking, means to make things right again, particularly in a broken relationship. It means to bring harmony where there is disorder. It is pictured for us in the story of the prodigal son, which we heard just a few moments ago. It's an amazing story, an amazing narrative that Jesus invented in order that we might understand what reconciliation is like. The Greek word for reconcile is katalasso. And really, it's a word that theologically stands at the center of the gospel. In the Old Testament, God established a priesthood and a sacrificial system that was in the temple. And it powerfully exposed man's need for reconciliation. On the one hand, reconciliation with God required a sufficient payment. Now, that's why we use the word redemption. 
We, when you redeem something, you pay a price. You pay a, another biblical term would be ransom. And so it is. So on the one hand, reconciliation with God requires a sufficient payment for sin. On the other hand, the wrath of God must be propitiated. Not only must there be payment, but there must be satisfaction. There must be a way to appease the holy and just wrath of God against sinners. Why? Because the wages of sin is what? It's death. And so day after day, Old Testament priests would stand in the temple between God and man and offer the flesh and blood of prescribed animals on behalf of Israel as a nation and for specific people as well. The problem, of course, if you know your Bible, is that, as the author of Hebrews argues, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All of those sacrifices could not take away sin. It could only cover them for a while. No amount of animal sacrifices would be sufficient to reconcile God to man and man to God. This, beloved, is why the Son of God stepped down from his heavenly throne to become a man. A body you prepared for me, David said on behalf of the Christ. That's what the incarnation is about. It's about God having a mortal body. It's about God taking a form that would allow the eternal to die. It is inconceivable as you ponder it. Only a man could represent men before God, and so he must become a man. And yet only God could represent God, or re represent man before God and satisfy God. And so he had to be God. And so when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and here's why, to redeem or reconcile those who were under the condemnation of the law. As John the Baptist declared of Jesus, behold, the what? The Lamb of God, who does what? He takes away the sins of the world. The people didn't know it, but John knew it. Only he could be a sufficient sacrifice. Only he had the resources to pay our debt of sin and propitiate the wrath of God. The Old Testament word for this is atonement. He made atonement for us. It speaks to the act of bringing two opposing parties into a harmonious one. When William Tyndall was translating the Old Testament words in Hebrew on this point, he struggled to adequately articulate in English that word. And so he took the definition of the word, bringing two people together or making the two one. And you can see it in the English word. Atonement, you can divide it up. At one meant. We are now made one by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is the essence of reconciliation. 
This is the means of reconciliation. It's the power of reconciliation. And so before Epaphras brought the gospel to the Colossians, they were alienated and hostile to Christ, as so many people in our world are today, as as I once was. But he, that is Christ, has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by death. By offering himself in our place, he brought about reconciliation. If you're ever reading the Gospels and you come across the story of Barabbas, who was in jail as a a zealot and a rabble-rouser, part of the resistance to Rome, wanted to overthrow Rome, he was caught, probably a murderer. And when the trial of Jesus was happening... And Pilate was saying, what evil has this man done? Should I release him? And the people said, no, release for us Barabbas. What's the point of that? Why tell us that story? This is why. Jesus stood in Barabbas' place. And so in a very real sense, you know who I am? You know who your pastor is? I am Barabbas. And so are you. God has reconciled us. He's he's provided atonement for us by death, the death of a spotless lamb, the spotless eternal lamb to which all of the previous sacrifices only pointed. They were a shadow, as Colossians will tell us. He is the substance. And by the way, the word reconcile here is used in a different way in 2 Corinthians 5, which is really kind of the main text on reconciliation. We'll touch on that next week. In that passage, Paul's use of the word is katalasso, which I already said, but here in Colossians 1.21, it is apokatalasso. And Paul intentionally inserts a preposition to the front of the word. And whenever a preposition is added to a word, it intensifies that word. And so... What we have here is not merely the word reconcile, but rather to thoroughly reconcile or completely reconcile or to totally reconcile. Paul wanted no ambiguity about what he was saying. And the reason I think Paul chose this particular word is likely due to the false teaching that was swirling around in uh, in Colossae contending against the teaching that Christ alone is sufficient to reconcile one to God. Everything about the pagan religion in that part of the world said, you must do many things to be reconciled to God. And the gospel says, no, one thing has been done for you. All you have is Christ. All you need is Christ. Christ is uniquely and singularly sufficient in himself to reconcile all who will believe. In fact, the theme of this whole epistle is the fact that the only thing a sinner needs to obtain true relationship with God and the fullness of his blessing is Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus, 
you have exclusive and eternal access to all that God offers, all that God offers. There is nothing that God offers man that doesn't come to us through Christ. If you have Jesus, you have everything. If you have Jesus, you have salvation, you have redemption, you have propitiation, you have justification, you have eternal relationship with God. And by the way, the reconciliation has a specific purpose. This reconciliation that Paul is talking about is not just reconciliation for reconciliation's sake. It is reconciliation with a purpose, for our God is a purposeful God. Verse 22 says that Christ has reconciled you in his fleshly body in order to, that's a purpose statement, in order to, in order to what? In order to, I love this, pay attention, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There are many benefits to being a Christian, to be sure. But the ultimate benefit is the promise that one day we will be presented by Christ to the Father in all purity and holiness. You may be sitting here or listening and thinking to yourself, but I am I'm not that. I'm not pure. I'm not holy. If you only know my history. I'm not any of these things. I, I've messed up so many times in my life. How could he ever receive me? How could I ever be presented to him and accepted by him? Listen to me. When it comes to reconciliation, your past is no obstacle. No matter how deep and dark it may be. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. If you come to Christ to be reconciled to God, he will make you pure. Look at the three adjectives Paul uses. You will be presented as, first of all, holy, which means cleansed of all sin and separated entirely for Christ and his service. Blameless means you are without spot, or blemish, Ephesians 1.4 says, He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. And thirdly, above reproach, it means without accusation. This is beautiful. Without accusation, no one will be able to accuse you successfully on that day. And here's why. On that day, your conscience will not even excuse, accuse you. For your sins have all been washed away by the blood of the Lamb, and you will be totally aware of it. The law will not accuse you. For the life of Jesus has completely fulfilled the just and holy requirements of the law. The holy angels will not accuse you. They will stand ready to welcome you into the Father's house forever. Satan will not even accuse you, for on that day he will see you wrapped in the beautiful white robes of Christ's righteousness. And on that day, God will not accuse you, for it is he himself who has freely given you to his Son. You are free. You are holy in his sight. You are redeemed. 
You have been purchased. You have been forgiven. You have been declared righteous. And oh, beloved, if you are a Christian, and if you are in Christ, you are not yet what you shall be. But one day, you will be presented in the court of King Jesus, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And you know what he will do? He will present you to the Father. In Ephesians, the promise is that there will be an inheritance of the saints. It's not an inheritance for the saints. It is the inheritance of the saints. And you know why it's worded that way? Because this inheritance belongs to Christ. And who is the inheritance? All of the redeemed, all of the reconciled, whom Jesus has made holy and pure in his sight. One theologian writes, the purpose of the atonement was to enable Christ to present the redeemed to God, freed from sin and made holy in his sight, the whole work had reference to the glories of that day when the Redeemer and the redeemed will stand together before the Father as completely recovered from the ruin of the fall. And don't you long for that day? Well, Christian, does that not make your heart sing? Does it not cause you to hate your remaining remnant sin? Does it not propel you away from the world into the promises of him who makes all things new? Why, oh why, would you ever turn your back on Christ in favor of a life that is without hope and without God in this world? And that brings us to the second and final point that, God, that Paul makes here. We've considered the divine gift of a reconciled life and it is truly amazing. But Paul has one more thing to say in verse 23, and it has to do with the observable fruit of a, of a reconciled life. Look at verse 23. He says, all of these things are true for you. Let's take a run at it. Verse 22, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, watch this. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, have been made a minister. Paul says you will be presented before him holy, blameless and without reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith. And this may strike you as a little bit disturbing after the glorious things that we just learned. It may, might make you feel a little insecure. That is not Paul's intent. This is a happy letter. He is not after the Colossians. It, it, this, this little letter is not like, it's not like Galatians where Paul basically starts out by saying, oh, you idiot Galatians. 
strong, harsh language. And some language in that, in that letter is even more harsh. Colossians isn't like that. He starts off by affirming their salvation. He, he starts off by affirming the evidence of salvation in their love for one another and in their obedience to Christ. He's not saying this to scare them. You know why he's saying this? It's because it's part of the gospel message. This always goes hand in hand. And this caveat at the end, and Paul is not out to intimidate anyone or to rob us of our joy in the sovereign work of Christ. In fact, I don't even think Paul is particularly concerned about the, 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 the Colossians. All the evidence seems to point to their perseverance. They are persevering. Nevertheless, this first-class conditional clause is appropriate to test and encourage one's faith. The word continue is in the present, it's a verb, present, present indicative active verb, which calls us for continued faith and continued repentance. Continuing in Christ. And so it's almost as if Paul were saying, the normal Christian life is that a person continues and keeps on continuing. That they remain and keep on remaining. That they abide and keep on abiding. And the teaching of Jesus is this. Listen to this. Here, we go back to the promises. All that the Father has given me will come. It will come. If you have Christ, you have him forever. And listen, the only reason that this is in the text here and in Hebrews and elsewhere, this warning, is because we know in every church there are wheat and tares. And sometimes the tares don't know that they're tares. They, they don't know that they're unbelievers. And so wherever the gospel is preached, wherever there's a church, the gospel is explained. The, the glories of the gospel are expounded upon and the caveat is given, if you continue. In other words, if you are in Christ, if you have been reconciled by Christ, then there will be fruit. If the root is alive, the fruit will be alive. And Paul's concern, and the author of Hebrews' concern, is simply this, that there... It, 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 it's fairly easy to deceive yourself and it's fairly easy, very easy to deceive others because you can take that tree of salvation and you can tie plastic fruit to it and make everybody think that there's life in that tree when there isn't. And so Paul will say things like, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. This is not to dishearten you. This is not to encourage you. For those of you who are walking with Christ, this is not an intimidating passage because you know whom you have believed and you are persuaded that he is able to keep everything you've entrusted to him until that day. Whenever I think about the doctrine of perseverance, I always think of the book of Jude, and I want you to turn there with me. It's second to last book, and it only has one chapter. It's short. And so go to Revelation and turn left a page. In fact, uh, there it is. 
Jude. I want you to see this. And, and this is going to sound very familiar because I use this at the end of almost every worship service in which I preach. But I want you to see a verse that I, I typically don't mention because it's not part of the benediction. But it is part of this text. And the glorious thing is that they're both here. Okay, so enough explanation. Look at verse 21. Here is Jude. Jude, totally concerned about false teachers, infiltrating the church, big problems. The people are being tempted to abandon Christ. And so he says this, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Wow, that's means my responsibility? Well, of course. Of course you have responsibility. Are you cultivating a love for Christ? Are you cultivating desire for the word? Are you cultivating a heart that loves God more than anything? Are you living in a manner that you, you are strategically living to please the Lord? Keep yourselves in the love of God. As Paul would say to Timothy, discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. We could go on and on. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 uh, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, but don't forget the next verse, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to work his good pleasure. You say, what does that have to do with Jude? That's a good question. Verse 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Verse 24 says this, now to him who is able to keep you, Keep you in what way? To keep you from stumbling and to, listen to this word, present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Why? Because he has taken sinful people like me and like you and he has reconciled us to God. He has reconciled us to God. And he is able to keep you. If you are really his, then you will persevere to the end. It doesn't mean you'll never have a moment of doubt. It doesn't mean you'll never have a moment of discouragement. <laughs> Sometimes a, a moment can be any, any, almost anything. It could be a day, it can be a week, it can be a month. I know a, a man who went through a year, just a year or more of just deep, dark discouragement. And his dear brothers around him were saying, Bob, if, if you're not saved, nobody is. Nobody is. He's just so disheartened. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes for obvious ways, sometimes for mysterious ways. But here's the thing. Your salvation is not ultimately dependent upon you. It is ultimately and finally and from first to last dependent on him. And so this is the doctrine of perseverance and it is the doctrine of reconciliation. And I just want to close with two things. Number one, if you're hearing my voice right now and you have reason to doubt that you have been reconciled to God by the finished work of Christ, 
And consider this. In Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. When I'm teaching counselors how to think about the people they're counseling, we talk about forgiveness, we talk about reconciliation. And I always ask them, does God forget your sins? Doesn't the text say he throws them as far as the east is from the west? Yes, he does say that. But does that mean he forgets your sin? The answer to that question is, he is omniscient. He doesn't forget anything. He does something infinitely better. He remembers them, but he chooses not to remember them against you. He remembered them against Christ so that he would not remember them against you. And so God does not require you to clean yourself up before you come to him. Just come. and He will cleanse and save you by the power of his reconciling grace. And one more application here. If you are a Christian, you have been reconciled to God by the painful sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Do you find yourself in an unreconciled state with someone, especially a believer? Have you made every humble attempt to reconcile with them? Or are you just letting it go, hoping that time will heal all wounds? It doesn't. There's no time in your life when you are more like God than when you seek reconciliation, when you offer forgiveness. Sometimes the most precious relationships are the reconciled relationships, and you won't have one if you don't seek it, strive for it, press into it, obey. And so I exhort you today, would you show the world what God is like? Would you show the world what Christ is like? Would you show the world what the gospel is like? by seeking reconciliation. And as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Go and be reconciled. Lord, thank you for these beautiful, wonderful, deep truths. And oh, Father, I feel so inadequate to present them. And words creak and groan under the weight of the glory of these things. We praise you for them. This is theology for doxology. These truths lead us to worship and to bow before Christ. Holy Spirit, would you come and save some? Would you come and convict of sin and righteousness and judgment in the household of God to purify us for our joy and for your everlasting glory. Oh, Father, with these things we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.